Make sure to give my dad a five-star review. Get, make sure to like and subscribe to his YouTube. And thank you for listening and enjoy the show. show. <laughs> if you're too confident in your own political views, then why bother having a conversation with somebody who differs from you? So yes. just, the, just the idea of having a podcast like this is the idea that I might be wrong. That's why I want to talk to somebody with different views. Um, well, if you're not humble, right, why bother with the conversation? Because I already know the truth and I don't have to bother with this. Hello, Faithful Politics listeners and watchers. This is Josh Bertram, your faithful host. Thanks for tuning in with us again this week. And with us today, we have Ethan Hollander, Professor Hollander. Um, he is an associate professor of political science at Wabash College in Indiana. He earned a PhD in political science from the University of California, San Diego, where he was also a faculty fellow. He has received the McLean McTernan Arnold Research Scholar Distinction and the Story Collider Podcast Artistic Director's Pick Award. He's the author of Hegemony and the Holocaust, State Power and the Jewish Survival in Occupied Europe, and he's published research on authoritarian rule in Eastern Europe and democratization in the Middle East, and his newest work right now is uh, is the course on Wondrium, which was previously the Great Courses, and it's an online subscription. I subscribe to it. I love it. They are not uh, supporting us at all. <laughs> you know, we're not sponsored by them, but I definitely recommend and definitely recommend the course Democracy and Its Alternatives, and you can find that at Wondrium.com. Thanks, Professor Hollander. Ethan, Ethan is okay? Please. Um, sir, maybe, or your majesty? No, just Ethan. <laughs> just Ethan. I say that joke way too much. It's probably lame now. Um, but uh, thanks for being on today and, and uh, having this conversation with us. So and tell us a little bit about your background and uh, why did you choose to, I mean, what made you crazy enough to choose to want to be in political science? <laughs> well, I, uh, you know, I started college as a physics major. Um, and really loved it. And I didn't, I wasn't weeded out. I didn't stop loving physics. I just took other courses too, as, as you do. Yeah. And I took, uh, economics and it was just very eye opening to me to see that you could study human society scientifically, uh, as you do in economics. And, and that also even in political science, it wasn't just all about making the best argument, but about real research and, and real observations about how politics works and and not only and, and, and certainly not even mostly advocacy for one position or another. And so when it, when I had my eyes open to the idea that you could study human society scientifically, albeit imperfectly, uh, that was that was great, and and so I, I kind of never looked back, and I, I majored in in political science, and uh, well, that's been my life ever since. That is so cool, you know. I I, I love political science as well. I, I'm a little bit of uh, what is it called a polyglot? Is that what it is? Where I, yeah. I like uh, you know theology. I love theology. I love economics. I love all this stuff, philosophy. So um, this is going to be a fascinating conversation. You mentioned science. Um, you know, we think of science as 
biology, we think of science as chemistry, the hard sciences or whatever, or physics, right? And you went from a hard science to a quote unquote soft science. What's the difference there? What, what was that transition like? Well, you know, you, you do get that question all the time. Is political science really a science? And, and you know, I mean, it's, uh, I think it certainly is. I, I think it's a different kind of science than, than something like physics or chemistry. You know, in political science, we just can't set up experiments in that same precise way. We can't control for all the all the other factors that may out there, or at least we can't do it with that same level of precision. Um, so, so I don't know if it's science in that way. Um, nonetheless, you know, if science is an investigative process that involves testing hypotheses and, 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 and that sort of thing, well, we, we would all agree. I think that meteorology is a science. Yes. We all agree that medicine or ecology are sciences. Now, those things are also very imprecise. And they're also the kinds of things where it's very hard to set up experiments, certainly controlled experiments, um, where there's a lot of imprecision. Uh, you have to make a lot of assumptions to, 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 to go forward with experiments in those fields. And yet they are sciences. They're just imprecise ones. Uh, so if you Consider that something like meteorology, with all of its bad predictions, is a science. <laughs> well, I guess I see political science as a science in that way. Uh, not with the precision of a physics or a chemistry or something like that, uh, but, but maybe in the way that meteorology would be, where, where you know, reasonable people looking at the same evidence might come to different conclusions, um, but still be able to then test their hypotheses by by looking at events in the world. So that that's fascinating to me. What so before we get into the course itself, help us understand a little bit of the method of political science. Because you know you mentioned the method of like maybe physics or maybe chemistry with the experimentation and control and stuff like that. And you mentioned that these more imprecise sciences that they you know that the method is different. Uh, it's, it's less precise. So describe, help us understand, like, how do we even come to have political knowledge? What's the method that we might use to get there from observing, hey, look, we got this place where I go vote and all this stuff. And then these things happen. I don't even think my vote matters. What, what's the method for, for even investigating political things? Well, you know, you, you, it's, it's, it's the scientific method. So you develop a hypothesis, which is a fancy word for saying, you know, a prediction about what will follow if what you think is the cause of a kind of thing is indeed the cause. Right. Uh, so, you know, will an economic decline ahead of a presidential election hurt the prospects for that, uh, the, the sitting candidate? That's a great uh, question and a, you know, and a and relevant question. Right. And so, that, so then that's a hypothesis. You, you suspect that maybe it will. Maybe if there's economic decline, it, it will hurt the prospects of this candidate. And then you you wait and you see if 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 that happens and you compare it to other situations where there wasn't an economic decline ahead of the election. And maybe that candidate did well, uh, did well. Um, and so if the prediction holds, um well, then your your hypothesis has been shown to be has been confirmed. 
and and you move on to retesting, just like you would in any science. Um, now, one thing that, for the most part, political scientists have to do that that somebody like a physicist usually doesn't uh, is that we're reliant on on observational studies or natural experiments, which is to say that you know if I want to do a chemistry experiment, I want to know if putting these two chemicals together creates an explosion. Well, I could set up a very clean laboratory with no other two chemicals than these two chemicals. And then I can mix them in these precise, precise proportions and, and really know, right? Because there were no outside. Right. In political science, we, we, we kind of can't say, well, you know, if there's uh, a, an economic, uh, a political crisis here, will genocide follow? We can't, and, and we also wouldn't want to, by the way, but we also can't sort of create a society and create a political crisis and then see if genocide follows, right? Yes. What we have to do is sort of look at things that are happening out in the world anyway, and then see if these regularities persist. Um, you know, but that's not something that doesn't happen in the quote-unquote real sciences, too. Of course. Uh, you know, when you have a, a an experiment like, you know, like Einstein did <laughs> about <laughs> relativity, he had to just wait for the next eclipse to see if the, you know, the image of where the sun was differed or not, whatever. Uh, he, he wanted to see if light was affected by gravitational forces or mass right. or whatever. And they had to wait for, uh, you know, an eclipse. And I think what happened is the sun moved in the way of some very distant star and the star appeared to be in a different place because its light was being bent on the way here. You know, well, that's an experiment. But Einstein and whoever else went out to actually do the footwork for that experiment, they didn't set up the eclipse in a laboratory. <laughs> they waited for it to happen naturally. Yes. And so I think the biggest defining feature of political science as a science compared or really any social science compared to the you know the the hard sciences is the limitation we have in the sense that it's very hard if not impossible to do laboratory experiments which means that all of our experiments tend to be what we call natural experiments or observational studies there are things that are happening in the world where you're just observing what's going on instead of setting it up. And so in that, there's got to be, I'm assuming, a a decent sense, which we should all have, but a decent sense of humility, maybe, about the conclusions. How, how do you work through that? You would hope there is. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I, I, uh, I can't say, sadly, that any group of humans are all saints, and that goes for political <laughs> scientists, too. For sure. um, I think all scientists, and then maybe particularly social scientists, uh, should should have humility. Uh, not just because it's a good thing, but but because it's scientifically appropriate. Yes, um, you know, people who really know science and, and the scientific method know that there's never a conclusive study. <laughs> all hypotheses are up for. Uh, you know, new research and, and being disconfirmed. And, you know, except for the very current ones, they've all been disproven at this point, right? The, the current set of scientific yes. knowledge is just what's left of all the things that have been disproven over time, including Newton, right? Um, you know, Newton, his 
theories about classical physics have been disproven by relativity. Well, great. Uh, that requires humility, right? Yes. And, and I, I think a good scientist like Newton probably would have said, um, yeah, this is the theory. This is the best knowledge we've got now, but it isn't the truth. Um, it's, it's what we, what we think to be true now until a better experiment comes around and, and comes up with a better hypothesis. And then that'll be the working truth. Um, but yeah, I mean, scientific knowledge, if, if you're a good scientist, you sort of must be humble because you have to have that realization that the current scientific knowledge is just that it's the current consensus and, and good scientists know that what you do is you continue to, to replicate those experiments and see if the knowledge uh, changes. So I, I love it. Well, because one, I think that <clears throat> by and large, many, a lot of the, a lot of the population or people I even meet, um, even though they're, you know, educated, well-educated, sometimes they, there's a lot of confusion about the scientific method or a lot of confusion about even like how we even come across. So like, it's almost seen as like science is this, like um, basically this, not God, that's not what I'm trying to say, but it's like, it's, it's the arbiter of truth. Mm -hmm. Essentially, when when I hear you saying that's not necessarily the case, it's more how we get it's a method of getting to the best possible conclusions based on the information that we have. And I think that that distinction is super important, but we, we don't need to stay on this too long because I want to move over to um, the dem democracy and its alternatives. But that connection there of like looking like when we're talking about democracy and when we're talking about these different um, uh, political, political motivations and political types um, of societies. Um, I think, uh, I think humility is always important to approach it with a sense of, we want to find the best thing for human flourishing. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Um, before we move on. I, yeah, I, I think humility uh, maybe would be a good thing, uh, not just in science, but in the world, right? If, if you, your whole podcast yes. seems to be based on this notion, I think a really good one, that if you're too confident in your own political views, then why bother having a conversation with somebody who differs from you? Yes. So just the, just the idea of having a podcast like this is the idea that I might be wrong. That's why I want to talk to somebody with different views. Um, well, if you're not hum humble, right, why bother with the conversation? Because I already know the truth and I don't have to bother with this. Um, you know, and, and that might be one of the keys. It might be the key to finding common ground um, is if more people had a realization that they might be wrong, um, they then have uh, a, a better willingness you know, and a higher sensitivity to listening to the reasoning of others. Oh, that's really good. And, and I love the way you put that. And <clears throat> when we're moving on to democracy and its alternatives, um, what what uh, inspired you to create it? How did this come about? And what, what's, what's it basically about? Help us understand uh, this course. Well, you know, uh, like you, I was just a fan of the great courses, uh, you know, before it became Wondrium and before they ever uh, reached out to me to do this course. I, I used to listen to the courses all the time. You know, back when you would yes. go to the library and you had to get them on cassettes yes. <laughs> and put those in your car. 
Uh, and I was listening to them back then in, in graduate school, even before. That's um, awesome. So I was a fan even before that. And they reached out to me. I, I, I always thought, oh, gosh, I'd love to do one of those. Oh, but they'll never ask me. <laughs> and then one day I just got this email out of the blue. Still That's not awesome. sure how they found me. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they asked if I'd be interested. And I, I, I couldn't have responded quicker with a year. <laughs> Um, there was a whole process to get selected. You know, you have to go out. There's an audition. Uh, they bring out at least three candidates for any given lecture. It may be more, for all I know. Uh, they send those, uh, you do like a sample lecture. They send that out to focus groups. They, they do a lot of homework, uh, to, 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 to get the best professors. Uh, I, I don't know how I fell through the cracks, but but that is why, in general, their courses are that good. Um, anyway, uh, so when they asked me to do a course on comparative government or global politics or something like that, the topic wasn't exactly set, but it was going to be loosely based on uh, the kinds of things I teach at Wabash, you know, um, comparative politics, global politics. Uh, how do political systems work around the world and how are they changing and why? Um, but in the course of doing the course over the course of writing the, these, these 24 lectures, it ended up morphing a little bit into a much more current and maybe more important question, which is why are we experiencing democratic decay? You know, you, you look around the world and democracy seems to be under attack, uh, seems to be under in decline, uh, not just in the United States, but globally. Um, well, why is that happening? And as a political scientist, it's not even a question of, does that make me sad? Uh, by the way, it does. Um, but, yeah. but, but why is it happening? Right. My, my yeah. goal again, that gets back to that political science thing is to explain why the systems work the way they do. It, it's up to my students and you and whoever else out there to decide <laughs> what they think about it. Um, sure. and so. So democracy and its alternatives uh, became still a course on comparative government. That is how governments work around the world and how those governmental systems change and why they are the way they are. Uh, but also uh, why this one particular form of government, democracy, which has done so well for so long and, and at least uh, has an, a, a real emotional attachment for a lot of us, uh, seems to be doing so poorly right now whether it's gridlock and polarization domestically or, you know, strongman politics and populism and, and radicalism uh, globally. Uh, why is that process happening? And, 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 and what, if anything, can we do about it? Man, I, I, I love that question so much. It's absolutely fascinating to me. When I was looking through the One Dream Forces and I saw it, I mean, I knew – Right away, I was like, I started listening to it because I had like five others that I were listening to. And then it came out. I'm always like, I got to finish these courses. Like I always like listen, but I listen to so many at the same time. And it's like, but then I saw that. I was like, I got to listen to that. And I just, I was immediately, um, I was immediately just sucked into the, to the topic and the ideas. And it's absolutely fascinating because I think I grew up with this sense that democracy is bulletproof, mm -hmm. that, that, that uh, America is bulletproof. Um, that you, <clears throat> that, uh, you know, the cold war is over. Um, communism is a thing of the past. Um, 
totalitarian regimes are the thing of the past. We, we will take care of those. We know how to um, as a world and as a country. Um, but all that feels in limbo right now. All that feels like sand going through the fingers almost. Um, what's going on there? Maybe even take us back. So what is democracy and what's, what, what's, what do we have here in America? And then maybe we can move on to the places in which it's being threatened and, and, and how we see that both domestically and abroad. Well, you know, as a, as a political scientist and someone who describes political systems and how they work, uh, I, I like, I think most political scientists would say that democracy is, is the form of government that's characterized by, by two or three uh, characteristics. And that two or three is essential because two of them are certainly essential. And the third one is more a, a matter of debate. And those gotcha. would be uh, representation participation and rights, liberal mm. rights. Um, so you're not a democracy unless you have two or maybe three of those things. So, so to be a democracy, you need to have representation. Uh, ordinary citizens have to have the ability to affect uh, collective decisions as they're made. That's, that's a defining feature of democracy. Uh, we do that in a representative dem democracy by voting on representatives who do that for us. They did that in ancient Athens by uh, the citizens, or at least the male citizens, going and voting directly on policies. But that's that's um, representation and also participation, right? You need to be able to to participate in that electoral process. So everybody would say everybody in, in social science. There's science. There's never a real everybody, but sure. almost everybody would say that, that to be democracy, a democracy, it has to have at least representation and participation. The, the more debatable thing then comes with rights, the hmm. right to free speech, the right to assembly, the, the right to practice uh, your religion, that sort of thing. Because, uh, you know, do you need those to be a democracy? Uh, let's give you a situation, right? What if the yes. majority of people decide that a certain religion should be outlawed? Um, well, on the one hand, that's democratic, right? The majority has spoken. The, the majority have said that, uh, you know, through their elected representatives and their vote, their participation, that that this religion, because they wear funny hats or whatever, whatever it is, <laughs> be outlawed. Well, is that now democracy? I mean, you and I, and by the way, you're kind of laughing. I mean, obviously it's not. <laughs> That's clearly not democracy, but but it does right. become a more difficult question to say why it's not. Because, you know, if, if the majority has spoken uh, and if the majority wants this, and if we all agree that, that, you know, a democracy is kind of like, you know, the system of government where most of the people get what they want most of the time, then if what they want is something that's uh, detrimental to the fundamental rights of some small group in society, uh, does that still count as democracy? Um, it's, it's an example of what we call tyranny of the majority, right? The majority is, is acting in a tyrannical nature. The, the problem is that, that clearly I've picked an example where that clearly would be bad, and, and we'd all yes. say that's probably not democratic if the majority decides 
that this minority uh, religious group shouldn't be able to worship privately. But what right. happens when it's a minority political view? What happens when it's a minority political view that's a really bad political view that, that you and I right. would, and everybody would agree is? Uh, what do you do, for example, with hate speech? Um, you know, usually it's a minority. Hopefully it, it's just a minority that, that would want to make that kind of speech. Um, I sort of have a belief that they should be able to, even if I don't agree with it, maybe precisely because I don't agree with it. Hmm. But if the majority decides that they shouldn't be able to express those views, uh, it becomes more debatable, particularly if hmm. they start making it more than just speech, but some kind of advocacy like violence, right? So a terrorist organization would be a minority in our society. Uh, we certainly want to outlaw those, though. Um, but, but you know, why? Because the majority says so? Uh, I don't know. Um, so back to your question, what defines a democracy? We're, we're always going to, if we make collective decisions, we're always going to have decisions that disadvantage groups within our society. Yes. And if we have democratic decision making, those groups are almost inevitably going to be minorities. Hmm. Uh, when do the rights of the of the minority, when are those rights so important that the minority should have those rights even when the majority disagrees? Um, well, that becomes a more difficult decision uh, and it becomes a political decision in and of itself. Uh, and so when, when you define democracy, it's kind of problematic because we all agree, you know, I think most of us agree, the majority sure. wants most of the time. We agree that we, we, we figure out what the majority wants through representation and through participation. Um, but, but when that's destructive of the rights of a minority, you know, what minority rights should persist even though the majority says otherwise. I, I don't have an answer to that question, but that's that's where the problem with the definition of democracy comes in. That makes a lot of sense. And what I hear you saying is that, you know, democracy in its purest, meaning pure not in a in a moral sense, right? In its purest meaning distilled sense, um, is just ruled by the majority of people. Mm -hmm. And so you so Technically, or if you you know you wanted to you know um, be ultra specific about it, um, if a majority decided to outlaw uh, any number of minority activities or whatever or religion, speech, whatever, that would be an expression of democracy in its most distilled form, in the sense that it's 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 the people participation and representation are there. And the people are deciding something and their decision goes. But that's not what that's not what we have here in America. Right. So, right, right. Correct. Yes. So what do we have here in America? I mean, we I grew up thinking, oh, this is a democracy. That's what I said. We live in a democratic government, a democratic society. What, what do we have here? Actually, so let me let me rephrase that and, and, and revise what I he said that that is democracy, but it's a particular type of democracy. That's majoritarian democracy. Gotcha. So I would say we still have democracy in America, but it's not a strictly majoritarian democracy in that sense. So majoritarian democracy would say 
you know, the majority gets what it wants. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, as it should, uh, most of the time, um, right. you know, uh, what we have in the United States is a democracy that, that requires more than that. Um, so we, we, we strive and it's not just in the United States, most political systems that are, that are bigger than just, a you know, a, a faculty Senate or something like that. Right. Most political systems have extra institutions that are put in there to make the decisions super majoritarian, not just, you know, such that not just a bare majority can always have its way, but you need a broader base of of support, whether that's numerically, you need a 60% vote for something to pass instead of just a 51% vote. <laughs> um, or by just spreading it out and saying that the vote has to be spread out in a certain way. Um, all of these additional requirements for a collective decision to be made um, enhance minority representation. Right. They, they hinder the majority from getting its way all the time, no matter what. Unfortunately, they also enhance gridlock. <laughs> Uh, because it means that ever smaller minorities in society now have the ability to hold up the system. Yes. If you look at it in microcosm, you can really see this process. If, if five of us want to decide on a pizza that we're going to win, that is, by definition, a political process, right? Uh, politics, I, I would say, most political scientists would say, is, is the process by which you make collective decisions when individuals within the group want different things. I love that. And, you know, there you go. So so make it simple so we can watch all the moving parts. We could do a yes. controlled experiment, so to speak. Five of us want to order a pizza. Um, problem, uh, two of us are vegetarian. <laughs> you know, majoritarian democracy says that if three meat eaters want to meat pizza, well, they could just outvote the, med- the, the, the vegetarians. And, yes. and so what? And they're going to order a pizza that's a meat pizza and the vegetarians are out of luck. Yes. Uh, now you could say, well, we can fix that situation by ordering, you know, a bunch of pizzas. Uh, but I don't know if we vote on five pizzas and I'm a meat eater, I'm going to vote for all of them to be meat. <laughs> and then you say, but what if the sixth pizza was a vegetarian pizza? And I say, great in theory, but when it comes to actually voting for it, I'm still going to vote for my meat pizza. Right. And that minority is going to be deprived of, I don't know, the right to a pizza. And that's, that's, that's bad. Yes. Um, and it's bad even just not just morally, I happen to think it is, but, but practically. Because at some point, these people are going to not want to be part of your society anymore. Yes. Uh, they're going to not want to eat pizza with you anymore. They're going to not want to be your friends anymore. And when that happens in a government it means they're not going to be want to want to be part of your country anymore. And they're going to riot or they're going to try to secede or they're going to commit acts of terrorism or, or whatever it is. Um, all that to say, uh, because of that danger, because of the danger that a minority will be that within a, a majoritarian democracy, a minority will be excluded from the collective goods again and again and again, and the violence that that might create. Uh, because of that danger, most democracies strive for something more 
than just a straight up majority vote. Three of us want meat pizzas, so the, the, the two vegetarians are out of luck. And we do things to 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 make sure that something more than a majority uh, is required for the collective decision to be made. Now, broadly speaking, we would call this a consensus democracy, hmm. not majoritarian, but consociational, or something that that seeks some sort of consensus. Yes. So, for example, again, on the pizza example, if you say all of our pizzas, when we order them, have to be voted on with four out of five voters, not just three out of five. Right. Um, Notice that's going to make it a lot harder to order a pizza. Yes. (laughs) It's going to enhance gridlock. Yes. It also means that now if the meat eaters want a pizza at all, they're going to have to make some option that's acceptable for at least one of those two vegetarians. <laughs> and so now we start to get into the situation where, all right, one of those five pizzas is going to be a, a vegetarian pizza. Um, and, and now it's in the majority's incentive, it's in the meat eater's incentive to order a vegetarian pizza because otherwise there's going to be no pizza bought at all. <laughs> yes. Um, now, on the level of a real government, uh, on the level of our five people ordering a pizza, you just change the electoral rule. And you see, right. they, all right, you need a 60% vote instead of 50% vote, done. It's harder to do that on, you know, in a society of 3 million people. It's, it's really hard to do that in a society of 300 million people. Yes. Uh, but we have other institutions that, that try to get at that effect. Um, the Electoral College is one of those, for hmm. example, say in the United States, because what it does in effect is it enhances the voice of small states, right? They get more yes. say than they would in just a straight up majority vote. And, you know, <laughs> uh, politically, that happens to work against me right now. Uh, politically that may, that may happen to work against your, your colleague right now. Cause it's not favoring the left right now. Cause you know, uh, the Democrats right. keep winning, uh, the, the majority vote, the popular vote, but we lose in the electoral vote. Uh, right. it's enhancing, it's certainly doing a lot to enhance polarization and gridlock and all those good things. Yes. Um, in theory though, what it's supposed to do is make it so that we have to seek compromise. Mm. Uh, in order to get any decisions made. In practice, what it's doing is it's making it so we can't make any decisions. And that's really, really hard. (laughs) (laughs) And like, so it's almost as if there's this like real tension between equality, equal treatment under law, equality, everyone (laughs) is getting and efficiency. They don't, they don't um, necessarily fit together that well. They're they're kind of opposing forces in some way. Would you say that? That's right. Yeah, I think there's a trade off. I think you you could have a very efficient government where everything was done by just a pure majority vote, and and as soon as one more than than fifty percent vote in favor of something, there you go. You you've got your decision. That's really easy. That's really efficient. But it also then has nothing in place 
as a protection of fundamental minority rights. The, the yes. protection for those vegetarians to at least get one pizza out of five, if not two, which is their proportion in society. Um, you can make politics, you can make everything require unanimous consent. You could. You <laughs> and could. then, by definition, nobody could ever be wrong. <laughs> the minute anybody would be wrong, they vote against it and the decision doesn't get made. <laughs> the problem That's is true. the decision doesn't get made because no decisions get made. Because on on the, the the size of a society, anything more than our five friends ordering a pizza, you will never get unanimous consent. Um, but certain institutions aim to get us in that direction at the expense of gridlock, at the expense of inefficiency. Yes. But, you know, the U.S. Senate, which represents all states equally, even if they have very small populations, that that makes for gridlock. Suddenly yes. the House of Representatives, the majority could want something. It doesn't become law just because of that. Because uh, the Senate overrepresents this, you know, other groups that are distributed geographically um, and overrepresents uh, minority groups. Right. Um, well, that's a protection for minority interests, but it comes at the expense of efficiency. So makes, to answer your question, right, there's, there really is this trade-off between yes. uh, more and more protections for minority rights, uh, but but at some level, you can't have every protection for minority rights because then you can't have any collective decisions. Any yeah. collective decision is going to meet with some resistance, yes. and that's got to be the fact of politics. What you hope, though is that the minority that's disadvantaged by this decision is different from the minority that's disadvantaged by the next decision. Right. That's different from the minority that's disadvantaged by the third decision and so on and so forth. Um, right. If the same group ends up on the losing side again and again and again, they end up losing faith in the process. And that's when you have riots and demonstrations yes. and, and, and when riots and demonstrations are the least of your problems, right? Yes. And that's, and that's what all democracies struggle with is that, uh, you know, when I corrected myself earlier, you know, the idea that we want to be majoritarian at some level, that most of us would agree the majority should get what it wants most of the time, but we also want some kind of protection for, for, minorities, whether those be ethnic or religious minorities or ideological minorities. Um, and, and those protections often come at the cost of political efficiency. That makes a lot of sense. It's also kind of sad. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's totally, it's just the way it is. It's just, it's just politics, right? Like, um, what is it? What's the quote? Um, was it, it's Churchill. Not, I, I know what you're going to say. It's Churchill. Like democracy is the worst form of government <laughs> except for all the others. Yes. Is that it? Yes. Churchill. Yes. Yeah. Except for all the others. And that's it. That's what he's getting at is that they're all flawed. Um, democracy, we hope, is the least flawed. Um, and, I, you know, maybe he's right. I, I don't yeah, know. I mean, I, I, it, <clears throat> it makes sense to me what he's saying or that quote makes sense to me. And even another quote that comes to mind is that if all men were angels, no government would be needed. Who, who said that one? 
I think that's uh, that comes from the Federalist Papers. Yes, I think it's Federalist Fifty One. Um, there you and go. I think Madison is responsible for that one. Um, <laughs> so I think that's James Madison. Yeah, if men were angels, government would be unnecessary. You know, and as I say in in the Wondering Course, but men aren't angels, and and women aren't either. So so no. uh, so we need government unfortunately and i think that's a sentiment that that churchill if he were sitting here would you know pull the pipe out of his mouth and say you know yeah that's, that's right well it's so interesting to me because like in my in my world view of like a christian worldview judeo-christian worldview thinking about like the how like the creation and things like that and and how there's been this, you know, there's been this fall. Now, there's a lot of debate about what that means, about what actually happened or anything. Theologians are all over, you know, there's a lot of different views on that. Mm-hmm. But this idea that something's fundamentally broken, maybe, mm-hmm. or something. And, and at least when we get into collective groups, things just start to, they can decline easily or people can get rejected or people can get you know, uh, persecuted and it's happened, right? How many, I mean, that's basically the history of the world, is it not? Where the majority and the minority fighting against one another, or a lot of times oppression and things like that. I mean, it happens all the time. Yeah. And, and sometimes, I mean, we're only talking about democracy so far. Sometimes it's a minority yes. with control over the majority. <laughs> um, yes. That too, <laughs> and then that's really bad. Uh, says me. Uh, yes. The- the politics says me too. The political scientist just has to be neutral <laughs> and say, "Oh, that happens too." Um, yeah, I think you. It's very easy, unfortunately, to interpret this through that. Uh, you know, I guess Judeo-Christian story of the fall, right? Like the, the look in the Garden of Eden. There's no shortage, so we don't have to decide on how many pizzas are going to be meat. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone can get their own. Their pizzas and. And we're all good. Uh, but the real world is our world now, and it's broken, um, right? And it's broken in many ways. It's, it's, broken, scarcity. But it's broken by shortage and scarcity. And, and so welcome to the world of economics and politics. In a world of scarcity, <laughs> who gets what and who makes those decisions? That's, that's politics. And these um, are like the toughest like issues like and to wrestle with, it seems like. You know, and I, I'm thinking about America, right? And I'm thinking about the America I feel like I grew up in and the America we are in right now. And of course there's change. Is it good change, bad change? People will have obviously very different views of that. Um <clears throat> what domestically do you feel like is happening right now? Like we've talked you've your course is about the decline. Right. Um, even you mentioned it domestically and abroad. Let's start domestically. What's where do you see the declines happening? Um, or, or what, what's the thesis there? Okay, uh, I will I will tell you what I think is at fault domestically, and I really do think it's at fault. When we get to the international part preview, I'll introduce <laughs> two problems with that explanation. Okay, <laughs> um, you know what I notice as as really big problem domestically, a lot of the problems come down to American electoral institutions. Mm. Um, 
and and the consequences of that. Uh, <laughs> what do we have? We have a gerrymandering. Uh, gerrymandering makes it such that you know, because what we have is a problem of polarization, and there's no moderate. Yes. Anymore. Okay, but why? Well, one reason might be because we have gerrymandering. Uh, no politician has to be a moderate anymore. In fact, you get rewarded for not being a moderate because mm. uh, you have your own gerrymandered district and you just got to cater to those people. That's it. You don't have to cater to the middle anymore. And, you know, to the degree that what politicians do shapes the way we think, uh, one can imagine that in a world where our representatives in Congress had to worry about moderates, uh, more of our representatives would be moderates and more of us would follow their lead. Yes. But, you know, gerrymandering makes it such that you don't really have to be a moderate. Uh, if you're in uh, Ocasio-Cortez's district, you don't want to be a moderate. You want to be <laughs> Ocasio-Cortez. <laughs> right. That's how you win. And if you're in Marjorie Greene's district, you don't want to be a moderate. You want to be a conspiracy theorist hate monger. Yes. <laughs> that's you know, that's how you win in that district, apparently. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, so so whatever, you know, in a world without gerrymandering, that's different. Uh, you have to cater to the middle because otherwise you're just not going to win. And gerrymandering is basically redrawing the lines that fit voting patterns. Is Co that correct? Okay. So I'm a Democrat. You're a Republican. We could each live in a district that's 50% Democrat and 50% Republican. But one who wants to do that? That's you know, too and, inefficient. And then we both have to run for re-election every time, and neither of <laughs> us want that. So I meet you off screen, and we make a decision that if I, you know, cut out this little portion of your district that's Democrats and put them in my district, uh, and you cut out this little portion of my district that's Republican and they usually vote against me and they, they vote in your district. Well, now we each have a safer election. Um, and guess what? That's something that both of us agree on. <laughs> that's something that Democrats <laughs> and Republicans have always agreed on is that they both want to win. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and they, they've hit on a really good strategy, which is gerrymandering. Um, uh, you know, unfortunate for Democrats, Republicans have been better at that strategy. Um, but unfortunate for America, Democrats are also good at it. Um, mm -hmm. And so we have, you know, gerrymandering has favor favors Republicans in more states than than it does Democrats. But that's not because Democrats aren't at fault. It, it, they're only at fault for getting on the bandwagon of gerrymandering a little later. Uh, they've made mm. full use of it in certain states as well. Um, <laughs> Where, you know, you've got these states that are razor thin margins on a state level, you know, 50 percent voting for 51 for Trump, 49 for Biden or the other way around. Right. But where, you know, they've got a congressional delegation of 10 and seven are of one party or the other, not six or five. Right. And that's largely the result of gerrymandering. Uh, there are other local electoral, you know, U.S. electoral institutions that that exacerbate the problem. Um, the fact that we have political primaries uh, mm. the way that we do, uh, what that means is that, you know, I've got to win to, to if, if I want to run for political office, if I want to run for uh, to be a representative of my district, and I'm a Democrat, 
I got to win the Democratic primary first. If I don't win hmm. that, I'm not even going to be the party's nominee and I'm never going to get the chance to run uh, for, 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 for the office. Well, what that means is that for Democrats and Republicans both, they have to win just among their party members first yes. in the primary in order to be their party's nominee in the general. Hmm. And what that means is, again, you're catering just to your own side. Um, and so party primaries also, uh, you know, they, they enhance, I hate using that word because it's usually a good thing, but they enhance the polarization. Mm. And you see that again on the other side. Uh, yes. A lot of Republicans, right? Uh, I mean, a lot Absolutely. of Republicans are good people. <laughs> Shocking news here. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you run on a moderate platform in, a, in a Republican gerrymandered district, you're not going to win. And so you have to back the Trumper wing of Republicans. Yeah. Um, because otherwise you're not going to win your party's nomination. Uh, otherwise you're going to be John McCain. Yeah. And you're not going to win your party's nomination. Trump will. And the John McCain's are left out of the process. Right. Now, for reasons I don't fully understand, Democrats have, um, have been better at sort of keeping their moderates in office. And mm. you really see the, the, the radicals have kind of taken over the ship on the right in America. Yeah. I more so than on the left. I don't think it's not there on the left. And you, <clears throat> for sure, you know, flashes of, of even Biden having to cater to his extreme. Yes. Uh, just to get things done. And, and I don't like that. Uh, Cause I'm a real, I'm a radical moderate. Uh, really Same here. Else. <laughs> um, but for whatever reason, and maybe we'll get into that later, uh, or maybe we won't, because honestly, I don't have a great answer. You know, you you just have seen Democrats remaining more tethered to reality <laughs> hmm. as a whole <laughs> than hmm. Republicans. Hmm. Um, and the, the more radical views among Republicans reach mainstream Republican America more quickly and efficiently than they do on the left. Yes. Uh, I don't know why. And, and I don't, I don't like it on either side. I, you know, I don't, I don't want the Ocasio-Cortez radical of, of, of the left to, to, to get m more of a voice than it should. Yes. Uh, and I fear that, almost as much uh, it's hard to say that i mean the, the, do i fear that almost as much as the marjorie taylor greens it's hard to fear anything more than a Mar marjorie taylor green um <laughs> you know with, with her you know her jewish space laser theory and 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 q and or whatever else right you know about her she has that theory that no, I don't know that. And you are, so, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you are, are you Jewish? I happen to be Jewish, yeah. Yes, uh, that's right. I, I thought I, you had I, mentioned I that. By Marjorie Taylor Greene as a human, not as a Yes. Uh, just to be no, clear. no, totally, totally. Uh, but I was thinking that, like, that could be even extra offensive. Yeah. <laughs> she's got, yeah, it's, she's got, she had some theory about that Jews created COVID using a giant space laser. Oh my gosh. That, I don't know if worldwide international jewelry does control a space laser. They haven't told me about it. <laughs> you know, so You'd been, like access to that. And, I, and darn it. 
pissed. So that, yeah, she's got um, uh, some, you know, and you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's- no, you can't. Lizard people. I've seen some of the QAnon stuff. We had a guy on the podcast that talked, he was an expert on QAnon. Uh-huh. And uh, yeah, but anyway, it's it's wild. It's wild. So, yeah, I, f- I forget how we got on that. We, we knew we'd go on many. Uh, yes. Paths, but uh, the, the left seems to be better tethered to reality than the right right now uh that doesn't mean it's well tethered to reality it's just better <laughs> uh, the, the democratic tether to reality is is the worst tether except for all the others <laughs> so that's awesome man i love that you know i so we have gerrymandering we have uh, that's creating this like polarization we have the primaries yeah plus create- the primaries. yeah yeah, we have the primaries that create what I'm hearing is this you have to cater to uh, everyone in your party first, which may change how your views are before you even can go and be presented to. So it's like you're already shaped by the party um, to the extent, like in their image. That's right. Um, to the point where you will not get uh, elected if you do not shape to their image. Would you say that's correct? Usually, yeah. Usually. I should add a footnote. I'm an elected official on our local city council, uh, and I am an independent. Uh, I ran as an independent. Uh, So, so again, in in a social scientist sense, I'll say you can't do that. Uh, I'll also, like I said earlier, there's never an always in Sure, yes. And and I'm able to do it. Uh, Why am I able to do it? My irresistible charm. Probably part of it, probably not a big part of it. Um, you know, on a local level, I can actually walk my district. Yes. I can actually know my voters. Yes. I can potentially meet enough voters to actually sway the election. Yes. Um, so, you know, that's why a Democrat can win in Crawfordsville, Indiana. And we have Democrats on our city council. Right. And that's why a, a closeted Democrat like me <laughs> win. I pretend to be an independent and I go out and meet people. Yes. And, and uh, you know, totally joking about my magnetic personality because I don't have <laughs> it. I can just meet enough voters and, and meet them one-to-one that they don't va- vote based on party. Yes. Um, at anything more than the local level, at anything more than a small level, that's becoming harder and harder. Very difficult to do. And that's another um, institutional cause of the crisis in America, right? The, the partisan politics. <clears throat> um, the fact that partisan politics has has infiltrated at every issue and every level, every level at the lowest possible level. Oh my word! Yes, you know, yes, it I mean, is. ten years ago, you could be a crazy anti-vaxer, but you could be a crazy anti-vaxer of the left or the right. Yes, and you saw it, right? You saw it. My my brother's a pediatrician, and yes. he saw cases of. I, I'd have to ask him. I don't, but it might have been polio. Polio, in oh my in word. the two thousands. Why? Because he's in the Bay Area, and there were these sort of crazy leftist anti-vaxxers <laughs> vaccinated polio. And so all of a sudden, pediatricians in America, right, are seeing yes. cases of polio. 
you know, all that to say, it used to be the case that you could be a crazy anti-vaxxer, but you could be a leftist crazy anti-vaxxer or a right-wing crazy anti-vaxxer. Yes. That anti-vaxxing craziness has migrated so it's become a political thing. Not yes. that there still aren't crazy anti-vaxxers on the left, but there are fewer of them and they're not as loud. Yes. And they're quickly shut down by the mainstream on the left. Hmm. Um, uh, and again, that's one of the places where on the right, and I hate to say this because I really try to be neutral, but on the right, that tether to reality is is a little weaker. Hmm. Um, and those views have, you know, they, they express themselves in Trump being, well, he gets vaccinated himself, but he won't really come out and advocate for vaccines. And he, you know, you, you get that sort of a more muddled Oh my you word! You on reality out there, right? <clears throat> I mean that that situation with the vaccine to me is one of the things that's so absurd to me because, okay, I should be careful. Like, not I, I, I think anyone should be able to choose if they want to do it or not. That's my personal sense. I mean, for the common good, for sure. But forced vaccinations, I don't. Know. I mean, that that seems a little too much for me. Uh -huh. But, um. It, it's it's this vaccine thing has been so crazy because on the one hand, like Trump was the guy who actually helped. Right, he was under the presidency that did the vaccine. Yeah, and 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 had it go and 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 put all like took away the red tape or whatever so that it could what was a project like I don't know like light speed or whatever. So he had to or warp speed. He had to, he, he he did that and then it. And then it all shifted. And it's so weird to me. I just don't, it, it's like politics is one of those things in the media. It's like how the hypocrisy is so difficult to handle. It's so difficult to handle because things that were said like a month ago are now, are now totally different. Mm -hmm. And masks become political. Masks. Yeah. It's like, this is crazy. Uh, yeah. You're, you're preaching to the choir, Reverend. Um, I, you know, yeah, and it's, uh, you know, I bring up vaccines because it's such the obvious case where it used to be nonpartisan and now it is. I would be happier if the, if there were more anti-vaxxers on the left, as long as it was sort of counterbalanced by fewer anti-vaxxers on the right. I would be happy if, if vaccines, masks were nonpartisan, but they aren't anymore. They've become partisan. And along with that, everything. Um, your belief in climate change, whether it's happening or not, forget your belief on how much human causes are to blame. Forget your belief on how much getting rid of fossil fuels will actually do to fix the problem. Right, right. Your belief, right. And because of that, we, we lose sight of, of real solutions that might help. Um, at our local level here in Montgomery County, Indiana, uh, it's become partisan whether you want wind energy or not. Um, now, I don't care if you think global warming is, is a hoax. You should still kind of want wind energy because it's yeah. cool. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we have a lot of wind here and windmills are, are good. <laughs> yes. Suddenly now you have to oppose that if you're on the right. Or solar energy. Why wouldn't yeah, we be able to get our stuff from the sun? <laughs> Something else we've got a lot of here. You know, we're in Indiana. We have we have a lot of strong. When the sun shines, it shines strong, and, and we're pretty good for solar. We're very good for wind. 
because we don't have any topography. <laughs> so <Right. laughs> it's the Midwest, right? Uh, and so wind power would be great, but there's a real strong political force against it. I don't know why, um, uh, you know, except for that it's become partisan and it shouldn't be. And again, maybe I, I'm not going to sit here and say that wind is our only solution because it's a drop in the bucket. But only right. it's a drop in the bucket that we should take if we can. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's already developed. Yeah. And that that view right there that I just expressed, skepticism that wind energy is going to save us, but also support for it. I I don't know where where to find that view anymore, because you see on the left this um, I think over optimism in the ability for green energy to save us. When in fact, what really has to save us is less consumption. <laughs> um, yes. Just having less. We, we have to have fewer cars uh, uh, and also cars that are electric. But, but even so, we need just fewer of them. That's really what's going to save us. We need more people mm. walking to work. We need fewer people using single-use plastics. <laughs> we need, right. um, you know, I don't know, whatever it is. Uh, don't get me started on that. We really need that. In addition to green energy, um, to, so that the energy that we still need to use is cleaner. Um, but I, what I see is is sort of a, a, a lack of humility, honestly, on both sides. Right? You see on the left this idea that if if just we had more solar power, we'd be fit, we'd be saved. Um, eh, not really, right? Right. But it would help. Uh, and yes. what we see on the left, on the right, is because it would help, we have to oppose it. Because uh, mm. we have to admit that that the environment is in danger to want to support these kinds of policies, and we can't admit that. Um, yeah, so we we just get a, a, a our polarization and our bipartisan gridlock makes it such that you get punished for advocating moderate views. Um, your your guy, you had a a. a, a a guest on your podcast a few weeks ago talking about Benghazi in that way. Yes, yeah. Where he says, look, it was a, a if you have to edit this out, please do, but it was a shit show on both sides. Yes, um, it was, absolutely. You know, and, and I don't remember exactly what he said. I, I have to now go read his book, which I want to. He was he was great. It was a great guest. Yes. I was a fan of your podcast the same way I was a fan of The Great Courses ever before I was ever directly involved. Uh, and, you know... It was a shit show on both sides. Probably yes. a shit show on the right. Uh, probably, but but on both sides. And to say that, like that guy does, his name was Ethan Chornin. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just want to give him credit where credit is. Yeah. Um, you know, he himself said, look, for, for expressing his views, he gets crap from both sides. Yes. <laughs> Which is probably a good indication that you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, absolutely it is. I mean, I I see that because I mean the the protected interests are unbelievable in in this country and I don't but it's I I, I can't imagine that all of this is uh you know just particular to is just particular to here, right? Mm -hmm. Um but so it's it's definitely broader. And let's just take a like a few moments in this last maybe like 10 minutes we got together. Um, to talk about this democracy on a wider scale. On a global scale. Um, on a global scale. On a global scale. Sure. What's going on there? 
And um, yeah, what? How is it declining? What's happening? Okay, l- let's do that. And and you know, you promised that we would get to this earlier, and I said, well, I give you my reasons why I think American democracy is so beset by gridlock and dysfunction. And then I said, well, when we talk about it globally, I'm going to have to refute all of those arguments. Uh, and I was going to give you two refutations. Um, I do think that everything we said earlier about gerrymandering and and the two-party system, which we didn't even get into that much, and the party primary system and the electoral college and, and all those electoral uh, 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 you know, uh, institutions are part of the story of why American democracy is, is in decline. The problem with that as an explanation, with those things as being the explanation is twofold. Uh, first of all, those things have all existed for a really long time. And I think we'd all agree that the current crisis in American democracy is relatively recent. It's the last 10 or 20 years. But, you know, we've had the Electoral College since our founding. We've had a two-party system for well over a century. We've had gerrymandering. I mean, the term was invented in the 1700s, 1800s, I forget. So Mm. none of those things are new, but the polarization and the gridlock is. And so it's, as as a social scientist, it's hard to use those institutional features of the American system to explain our gridlock because our gridlock is new and those things are all they predate the gridlock by a long time uh so so i think they have to be part of the story but i also know that they can't be the whole story uh there's that humility again right like i i think we have to always know that we don't have the full story um so that's one problem with with american electoral institutions being behind uh, the decline of democracy. It's got to be part of it. It can't be the whole story. Uh, right. The other problem with it is exactly what you now bring up, which is that it's a global phenomenon. We see democracy under attack globally. And, you know, they don't have an electoral college in France. And yet Marine Le Pen is doing better than ever. And, mm. uh, right. Uh, we don't have, uh, you know, you see populist strong men on the left and right taking over all over Europe and, and in many places all over the world, uh, in places where they never had these issues of a two party system or American style polarization. So we need explanations that are both more recent to explain the current crisis and they have to be global to explain the current crisis. And all that stuff that hmm. we talked about that I still think is right can only be part of that story. Right. So what is happening globally to cause democracy to be in decline? Uh, uh, spoiler alert, I don't know. <laughs> I'll give you my theories, but but I, I like, yes. you know, I, I really do sort of, I take that role, if you didn't guess it from the beginning of our conversation, as a social scientist, uh, very seriously, and and skepticism yes. is the biggest part of that. Skepticism about yes. my own views is the biggest part of that. Um, yes. So so I don't know, but here's my speculation. Um, I think one thing we've seen definitely in the last twenty or thirty years is uh, globalization. Uh, we've seen uh, unprecedented global wealth, but also unprecedented 
global inequality. Hmm. Um, and that's something that is global, right? The differences between the, the, the have gap. and have not, that gap has grown everywhere. Now, everybody's gotten wealthier, <laughs> but the wealthier have gotten more wealthier than the poor. And, mm. and that's got to be part of the polarization. Again, you've seen that on the left and the right, because the right has become much better at advocating for the poor uh, than it used to be. And the left has become much worse at it <laughs> than it used to be. <laughs> and now what you see, again, in America, but, but not just in America, is a kind of left-right divide that's more urban-rural. Uh, if your concern is urban interests, whether that's elites, educated elites, um, or poor brown people in cities, <laughs> that's what the Democratic Party is for. Um, if you care about, uh, you know, old school, wealthy, you know, establishment Republicans or rural poor, right, uh, you know, rednecks, so to speak, that's what the yeah. Republican Party is for. Yes. And they both come with, with the best and worst of both of those positions, but we, we just don't have that divide. And you know what? That is global. At least, you know, my expertise tends to be European politics and you see that in Europe too. Uh, the Brexit vote was largely, uh, you know, sort of, you had these urban uh, educated parts of the population opposing Brexit, uh, rural, less ex educated, mind you, I did not say not as smart, but less educated, because that often means less privileged, yes. um, you know, groups opposing it. Uh, the, the, the divide wasn't only that. It's social science. There's never an only that. It's always all these things, but that was a big part of it. Um, anyway, uh, if you want me to explain why democracy is under attack globally, I think we have to talk about global wealth inequality um, between the rich countries and the poor countries, and even more importantly, between the rich and the poor in any given country. Yes. Uh, there has to be also a part of the story that has to, that has a geopolitical component. Uh, you know, in the cold war, there was a certain order, <laughs> uh, you know, the United States sort of had its allies and, and our, our system that we promoted within our circles and the Soviet Union had its allies and its crappy system, but, but that it promoted within its system, you know, uh, yes. uh, uh, and there was a, there was a stability in that. And there was a stability in there only being two superpowers. Right. There was also a stability in there being only one superpower, yeah. uh, which we were uh, sort of starting in 1990, let's say, or 1989. And, and I don't know, going until the mid early two thousands, right. The, hmm. You know, but I don't know, you know, the, the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan don't go as well as we had hoped. They expose weaknesses even in uh, the Western Democratic Alliance. Yes. Um, uh, we, as a result, get more isolationist. Uh, that then opens the field for challengers, particularly China. Um, uh, and so we have this multipolar world geopolitically. And, and I wonder how much that, too, Ha is it fault for uh, the rise of strongman politics, the rise of of, of populism, 
the rise of political extremism globally. Um, you know, is sort of the weakness of, of either the two poles or the one pole, uh, geopolitically. Yeah. Long story short, uh, why are we having these problems globally? I still believe everything we said at the first part of the podcast about American <laughs> institutions being problematic. Uh, yes. when you realize that it's a global problem and when you realize that it's a quote unquote recent problem, the last 20 or 30 years or so, we need explanations that are newer and that are global. I gave you my two hypotheses. Uh, it has something to do with the polarity of the world, and 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 we're not a, a unipolar, one superpower world anymore. It has something to do with globalization and inequality. Uh, but really, I put the call out there for my social scientists, whether mm. they're academics or even better if they're journalists and 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 you know academics who actually care about the real world, <laughs> right? Um, you know to look for explanations and to try to explain it and to try to explain it with things that are valid as explanations. That is to say, don't explain something that's happening today with reference to something that's been around for two centuries. It just doesn't work. <laughs> uh, and it just, yeah. don't explain what's happening globally with reference to something that's happening pretty much only in the United States. It's, it, it's, it's ethnocentric, it's American-centric, but even if that wasn't bad on its own, it's also bad science. Um, and I, I strive for good science. Ah, that's, uh, I, I love that. And, uh, I mean, to me, those two things kind of just make intuitive sense, you know, when you have this major gap that people can tend, you know, they don't, they want more. They want what they see, you know, I mean, we all want, we all want more. And, um, and, you know, I think that's part of this human drive. And when you see people that maybe, you know, who, who, you know, you work hard, you mm -hmm. suffer through life, you, you know, you know, you do all the things that you feel like you need to do. You have the same problems, but you have way, way, way less money and they have all this money. And, and why do they get to have all that money? I mean, you know, there's all sorts of reasons and there's economic reasons and, all you know, all sorts of explanations, but at the end, man, you know that emotion of seeing like the disparity, um, especially if you're in the poor, right? Um, if you're part of that, and and of course, like the global, like some of the global poverty, maybe I mean, kind of blows our poverty maybe out of the water in some sense because of the complete lack of any structure to help. Um, yeah to help any, you know, to help the people who are not the have nots, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I speak from a position of privilege and I know it, right. I, I, yeah. I, you know, I, you know, fortunately for me, I don't know what it's like to be on the have not side. Uh, you know, uh, and, and I see that living in a rural area now. And that's why I hope anyway, that I have more uh, uh, sort of understanding, or at least that I have, some understanding of of the sort of unsavory part of right wing politics, the, the, yeah. the sort of the rednecks, you know, they they, they you know the the racists that 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 not all that certainly not all uh, rural poor people are not even a majority or even a big part of them are, but but you know where does that anger come from? Yeah. I get it. Um, fortunately, yeah. again, because I'm privileged, I can't get it that well because I never yeah. suffered directly. But there is a lack, a, a loss of hope among white, rural, 
poor in America. Yeah. And sometimes that gets expressed in a Marjorie Taylor Greene, and I hate that, right? Yes. Um, you know, and that gets expressed in anger, and that gets expressed in racism and anti-Semitism. But uh, it, that's not the, the; those are they're good people in a bad situation. And I think, unfortunately, elitists on the left forget that um, all too often. Um, and and if we each, if we saw our problems not as either or, but as both, you know, yeah. the, the problem with populism can be these domestic political institutions, but also global inequality. Um, yes. The problem in America can be uh, the, the sort of conspiracy theorists on the right, but it also can be, you know, the decline of American manufacturing uh, yes. and, and rural poverty too. Uh, you know, that can be both. It doesn't have to be in either or. It can be a both and. And oh my, if people on both sides of the political spectrum knew that and talked as if they knew that, um, what a better world this would be. Um, oh, yeah, it would be. You know, I... It's a lot of repair. Maybe that's repair <laughs> <and> start. <laughs> well, we're trying to do our part, you know, and that's that's kind of, I mean, that's a big reason why we we doing the podcast or, you know, a big motivator for me, just trying to do my part. Sometimes it feels like it's not very much. And sometimes it feels like it's, it's, it's good, but you know, you just use the influence you have, you know, I have one, one last question. Um, if we have a, we have a, a pretty diverse spectrum of people that, uh, listen and watch, um, yeah, you know, so for this this audience, this diverse audience, what what would be like the one thing, maybe that you would say, like that that you would want to say to them, given our current situation in the world in America, what is what's the what would you want to say, like even from your heart, like even not even as a social scientist, but maybe just as Ethan, like what would you want to say to the um, yeah, to our viewers here. Um, yeah, just uh, just just express your heart to them. Um, um, you know, it's uh, uh, I, I think it, it's the humility message that you brought up earlier. Um, hmm. uh, when you the only place I balked just for a second when you asked that question was, you know, to say it to your viewers, because uh, unfortunately the types of people who are going to tune into this kind of podcast in the first place are maybe the people who need the message less, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and not all of them, I'm sure, you know, there, there are bad people who listen to your podcast too. There must be some, uh, but there probably aren't many of them and so on. Uh, so I think the humility, um, the humility in science, like the realization that science doesn't have all our answers, but, but also uh, some, respect for authority and that not just mean political authority but scientific authority you know we were talking at the very beginning of the podcast about scientific knowledge and it's unassailable now and yes. so on i that's true and the best scientists are those who retain that humility and that idea that their own science might be wrong uh it's really a, a hard argument to make these days when anti-science is so accepted <laughs> <laughs> you know, that just let's just completely throw out any idea that we need evidence for what we say. 
and and you know if trump says it it's got to be right so you know like and and you know i teach a research methods class and and i had a student you know say to me like i was saying look science can't prove anything that's part of the scientific method says that you can't conclusively prove any empirical observation because any there's always the possibility that the next observation will disconfirm it, right? Yes. That's why the scientific process is constantly unfolding. And he says, well, then there's no truth. <laughs> and I said, well, there, yeah, there isn't, I, you know, but, but don't tell anyone else. <laughs> That's a really dangerous view because there is scientific yes. consensus still, right? Yes. Uh, so, you know, global warming isn't a hoax. Uh, and that's uh, c- consistent with saying that it's not like we've proven it, you know, officially either, because nothing right. has been proven. It's been well enough established that I have no problem believing it. And right. I think most people should believe it. <laughs> um, sure. Because it's a pretty strong consensus. But I, I wish that scientists even, um, and, and also people on both sides of the spectrum, kind of talked with a humility that they themselves might be wrong. Hmm. Um, and it's hard to do. It's really hard to do. I wrote a book about the Holocaust. This is the joke that everybody made. How do you have that point of view when you're a Jewish guy who wrote a book about the Holocaust? Do you take <laughs> that view to the Nazis? And the answer is, gosh, should I say this? Yes. <laughs> um, which is to say, I think they were wrong, by the way. Sure. Um, yeah, I do too. <laughs> I think my, my history of them is better because I took them sort of seriously. When right. I studied them and sort of said, well, what are the motivations? Why would a good person vote for this? Yes. Um, you know, understanding that you might not be good if you voted for that, but why would a good person vote for that? What was, yeah. what was the appeal of it? Um, if we spent more time trying to understand why is the other side motivated to feel like they do, why would good yes. people on the other side feel the way they do? We might actually develop some some real, you know, empathy, heaven forbid. That's a, and that, that is might an unbelievable point. That is an unbelievable point. I, I think that's so good. Um, imagining yourself, like, just that question, why would good people believe something different than I do? Even, is such a profound question. And uh, Ethan, Professor Hollander, man, it's been such a... Uh, a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for coming and spending some time with us here. And um, if anyone wants to get involved in your work, or maybe maybe these are two small questions, um, what are you working on next, and, and how can how can people uh, follow you or find find out your work? Well, uh, you find my work. Uh, you know, you can attend Wabash College, and if you're a young <laughs> college aged. Uh, 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 student, you know, c- reach out. <laughs> um, uh, you can buy my great course. Um, I-, I hope you will. I don't, I don't make a whole lot in royalties or something like that. I really <laughs> advocate it because I'm a, a true believer in my course and in the great courses more generally yes. or Wondrium as it now is. Yes. Uh, they, they don't tell me to make this pitch. Uh, they have a free trial subscription on Wondrium. So if you don't want to commit, you can subscribe for two weeks for free. Um, yeah. At the end of the day, though, subscribing is like $12 a month. Yes. Yeah, not a lot. Real, uh... I, I spend a lot on that, a lot more on that, on a lot more silly <laughs> things than that. Um, yes, absolutely. As a download or as a DVD, 
if you still use DVDs, <laughs> download on Audible, on Amazon, places yes. like sold, as they say, wherever great books are sold, <laughs> uh, wherever great courses are sold. Um, you know, you can, um, my next project, I, I, I'm changing gears completely. Um, I, you know, I did this, this big thing that became sort of, uh, democratic decay and the rise of populism globally. That's my great course. My previous work was on the Holocaust and genocide. Uh, th that got too depressing, which is why I started talking <laughs> about democratic decay, which really helped. Um, and then, um, uh, my next project, I even feel embarrassed saying this because it's so nascent right now, but I, I said earlier, okay. there's a pediatrician. Yeah, uh, he also is very scientifically minded, like I do. G go figure, he's a doctor. Yeah, <laughs> um, he's not just any pediatrician, though. He does a pediatric heart transplant. Wow! And we are very interested, both of us, and it's been our private, personal conversations because we're brothers and we talk on the phone a lot, right? Yes. About the politics of organ donation and organ transplant. Um, that sounds fascinating. Yeah, like how do you decide? Who gets the heart? Who gets the heart? How do you oh prioritize the waiting list? And there's a system for it, but is our system right? Uh, yeah. Is our system the best? Uh, yeah. Are there better ways to allocate organs? Um, uh, I don't, you know, I balk at saying the free market is the solution to anything, everything. <laughs> sure. But I also balk at the idea that, you know, the command economy is the solution to everything. And that's what we've got now for right. transplant. Um, so, you know, maybe there too, the the best solutions are not in either extreme, but something both in the middle. End, yeah. We don't know what that is yet. We've, we haven't started the study yet, but we're both really interested in, uh, studying the politics of organ allocation and organ donation. Well, you guys, you heard it first here. Make yeah, you sure you... <laughs> And make sure you, you, you follow up, man. I, I, I appreciate it so much, Ethan. That sounds fascinating. And thanks again for being on. Hey, thanks for having me. It was, it was, this was really a pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Yes, absolutely. Same here. Well, guys, we'll see you next time. Uh, until then, keep looking up, keeping up great conversations.